According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth this morning. Join me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Continuing our study from last week. We got a good start on it, I thought, last week. Uh, virgins. In uh, the first few verses, 1 through 13, and then talents in verses 14 and following down through uh, 30, and then sheep and goat judgment in 31 through 46. So this chapter can be broken down into three different parts, 10 virgins, talents, and then uh, sheep and goat judgment. We'll get right back to that again here today. Before we do start, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are um, in fellowship. Any sin can be confessed before the Father. We can be restored to fellowship and prepared for truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for this message. The... Uh, all of it discourse, Father, that our Savior delivered uh, the night before uh, the night in which He was betrayed, Father, His final uh, night of freedom and uh, on His way out of Jerusalem for the final time. So, Father, uh, I pray that we would have uh, an understanding of, of this material, both from chapter 24 and from chapter 25. There's some deep material, Father, related to future events, related to prophecy. We want to understand uh, how the overall plan and program works and where we fit into that. So, Father, uh, please now at this time set aside distractions, take every thought captive, open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> we have a very simple outline for this. This is uh, event number 13 in uh, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. Uh, event 13, dealing with the parables of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the uh, Day of Judgment. We're going to have three points, one for each. How about that? So point one, the parable of the ten virgins expands upon the imperative to be on the alert. We had given some study and some information from chapter 24 related to the imperative to be on the alert, and this parable spells that out. We don't want to be uh, uh, conducting our life in a manner similar to how the foolish virgins were, whereby uh, they didn't have any oil uh, and no ability to, uh, to obtain any. At midnight, uh, they're not going to exactly run out to Walgreens and get some oil for their lamps. Uh, they just don't have any oil. And uh, the idea is that they are not prepared. And so five uh, of the virgins were foolish. Five of the virgins were prudent. And uh, the bridegroom was delaying, and at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom. And uh, the five that without the oil, uh, it's just too late. The preparation has to be made. And if it's not made within the period of time that's given, then there's no second chance. And um, when you look down to the end of this development in verse 13, or even uh, prior to that, uh, verse 11, you notice the door was shut. To the wedding feast. And, and later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. He's not going to open the door a second time. The door was open previously and they did not enter during the time of which the door was open. <clears throat> so be on the alert then for you do not know the day nor the hour. We've got a finite time. And this is why we discuss the urgency related to evangelism when oriented to to folks and how short this life is and how this is what you've got It's given unto man once to die and after that the judgment you don't get a second shot at it you don't have a you know a, a post-death opportunity to accept the gospel and uh, all of the the false teaching out there everything related to purgatory and everything else that the roman catholic church came up with is not from the bible you've got a short window this life only in which to place your faith in Christ. After that, <clears throat> it's too late. And so we see the uh, illustration of it there in verses 1 through 13. Now under point 2 in our outline, let me just skip on down. There were some sub-points and other studies here we won't go back to today. The parable of the talents, verses 14 through 30. So this is where we left off and where we want to get right back to it. 
It is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And this is where the first two are going to be rewarded. They're not going to be rewarded based on the absolute value of what they did, but they're going to be rewarded because they did something. They did something productive with what they were given. And uh, whether they were given five or they were given two, they did something productive with what they were given. The uh, individual who was given one did nothing whatsoever with it. He stashed it. He buried it. And he's going to come into account for that. So the one who had received the five talents came up and, and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Well done, good and faithful slave. All right. And so the principle here, you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge with many things. God rewards faithful believers. I hope we understand that. And we, we should not pout about how little we've been entrusted with. We should endeavor to be faithful with whatever we've been entrusted with. If he's entrusted us with five, wonderful. Uh, if he's entrusted us with two, wonderful. If he's entrusted us with one, all right, Wonderful. Be faithful with what you've been entrusted. It may be then that he will then reward you and you'll be entrusted with something greater next time around. This guy that was entrusted with five, is this the first time he's ever been entrusted with anything? Okay. Or the guy entrusted with two, is that the first time he's ever been entrusted with anything? The guy entrusted with one. Now, I believe that is his first shot at it. Okay. In the, in the understanding of this. Okay. Now, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Identical language to the guy who had received five. Now, he's not compared with that guy. It's not his fault that he was only given to and he only returned to within the capacity of what he was entrusted. He was faithful. He was good and faithful and he is rewarded for that. All right. Within that capacity. <clears throat> but then this third guy. The one also who had received the one talent. Verse 24. He came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. All right. Now, right away, <laughs> there's a difference with this guy in there. Between this guy and the other two guys. Did the other two guys have any kind of frame of reference for what the master's character was like or how fair he was or, or anything like that at all? No. They were called to accounts. They presented what it was they were accountable for. said, Master, here is your, your wealth. It's not their wealth. It's the Master's wealth. They traded with it. They earned five more, but it's not theirs. It's the Master's. Okay? And uh, no, uh, no element of pride, no element of, of, uh, of anything that we see here related to this third guy. This third guy, though, is... Uh, <laughs> You know, I don't know. I've got four kids. I, 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 it's always interesting when, whenever they want to say something, but they don't want to come right out and say it. And so they, they preface it with something leading up to that. Okay. Your daughter comes and she smiles and she says, Dad, do you love me? Well, this is an interesting conversation. Appreciate the way it's starting, but I'm wondering where it's going. Okay. And you notice the same thing here. Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. You're thinking, all right, where's this going? <laughs> Why the long introduction? 
and I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. And so he has this long introduction, this long justification, this long explanation. It's not my fault. Anyone would be afraid. Well, the other two guys weren't, okay? But he's trying to justify why it is he only has one talent to return and why there was no return, why there was nothing he had done with it. See? You have what is yours. And from his perspective, he thinks that's a true statement, but it's actually not a true statement. Because what ought to be that master's is not only the initial talent back, but also the the increase from that talent. There should be more than that. All right? But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. At the very least, if you weren't going to do business with it, if you weren't going to invest, if you weren't going to buy and sell and trade and, and uh, participate in the economy, then at the very least... Um, <laughs> You know, did, did you shove it under a mattress? Where'd you put it, right? Where'd you bury it? Give it to the bankers. Get interest on it at least. Therefore, uh, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Now realize, if you are faithless, are you going to be entrusted with anything else after this? And you'll notice... In, in, this, uh, in this imagery, now this guy's not even a believer, okay? We can, we can view this as the first talent every human being is given would be the opportunity to receive eternal life. And if you don't take advantage of that, then there's no increase and, and, and you're going to be shoved to the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, okay? So that, that's the first talent is the, is the offer of salvation to this lost and dying world. Beyond that, though, once you're saved, there's work to be done. All right. Once you're saved, there's work to be done. It doesn't stop there. You know, now that you're saved, now there's more wealth that can be entrusted. There's more of God's grace that can be poured out upon you. You can embrace what God provides beyond just being saved. There's work to be done. There's glory to be achieved. All right. But when you're not faithful, when you don't respond to what God's provided, what, what else can you do? Nothing. So take it away from him. Give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. It's remarkable. The Father has wealth to pour forth. He has treasures to pour forth. And they are treasures that ultimately belong to His Son, but they are treasures that He will assign to various other servants. All right? So that those servants can then throw them at His Son's feet. Now think about it. If it's the Father's good pleasure to pour all of this out and some loser Christian fails to receive those rewards, is the Father going to punish Christ because of that loser Christian? Or does the Father still intend to pour forth that treasure upon His Son? Right. He's just going to find another believer who's going to be volitionally obedient, who's going to bear the fruit, who's actually going to reap additional treasures beyond what he actually earned or deserved. Because remember, we operate under grace anyway, right? <laughs> All right. So uh, let's, let's get away from the thought that uh, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be strictly a, a tabulation of everything we earned and deserved in our Christian walk. Because it's so much more than that. And we are going to reap what we sow. We are going to receive reward commensurate with faithfulness. And, and, but more than that, beyond what we could ask or think. All right? And the treasures that are forsaken, the treasures that are lost, God the Father is still going to pour them out on God the Son. He's just going to assign extra treasure to the overcomers. What a, what a privilege that's going to be. All right. But from the one who does not have, the one who does not have, even what he does have. Now, you've got to be cautious with this. And this is where I think some people confuse things. Because how can you have something and not have it? Okay? Even what he does have is taken away and given to the one who has ten. And so the one who does not have, the one who had the opportunity because a talent was provided for him, 
and yet without capacity, without making use of it, without embracing what was supplied, it's, the opportunity is gone. I never knew you. He's not saved. All right, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is the language we see throughout the parables in Matthew pertaining to, um, pertaining to hell, ultimately. Pertaining to the, uh, the weeping apart from God's presence. The kingdom has just been ushered and these folks are being thrown into hell. All right. Now, as far as this goes, we have subpoints A, B, C, and D. And we stopped with B last time. Is that right? We got C and D to cover today? Okay. We'll skip by that. All right. Pay attention to the differences between this and the parable of the Manas. In the parable of the Manas, each slave was provided an equal amount to do business with. It's a big difference between Matthew 25 and Luke 21. Or I'm sorry, Luke 19. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. In the parable of the Manas, okay, Luke 19, verses 11 through 27, each slave was provided an equal amount to do business with. Each slave was given a mana and they were on an equal basis. And some excelled more and some didn't excel as much and some did nothing whatsoever. Um, so we have, a, again, a threefold breakdown in, in, in the outcome. And the reward, the uh, the consequences are similar. The one that didn't return anything, who just buried it and tried to hand it back, he's going to have it taken away. Okay, but they're provided an equal amount up front. It's important that we recognize that. So let's uh, hold your finger there in Matthew 25. Let's spot these differences. Luke 19, 11 through 21, 27, really. Okay. A nobleman, uh, Luke 19:12. he said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself. He called ten of his slaves and gave ten, them ten manas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. So similar story. All right. Uh, there are folks that think that this is actually the same event. I, I think they're separate events. It's probably a, a lesson he taught repeatedly on multiple occasions. But there's, uh, there's additional information here, including citizens that are not, uh, not featured in Matthew 25. Um, he comes back with a kingdom. And then there's uh, the accounts. And likewise, uh, the first uh, period saying, Master, your manah has made ten manahs more. He started with one and he had a tenfold return on his investment. That's, that's amazing. And well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, your, your manah, Master, has made five manahs. So they started with the same one. The first guy ended up with ten. The second guy ended up with five. So there's no equality of outcome, is there? But there was equality of how they started. And he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. And then here's another came saying, Master, here is your mana, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. <laughs> For I was afraid of you. And the reasoning is very similar, almost identical to our story in Matthew 25. You are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. Now, again, this betrays the attitude of pride on the part of this slave, similar to what we have in Matthew 25. Somehow this slave has it in his mind that what this master is doing is wrong. How dare you take up where you did not sow? As if somehow it is inappropriate to assign somebody else to do this work on your behalf or to invest in somebody else's labors or to, uh, to, to put your assets to this productive use. So you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. And this, all this, he's wrong. Well, he's right and wrong, okay? Um, but, the, but the slave... If the slave assumes that he's the one doing the work, he's the one that ought to have ownership of this. 
He's got the, 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 the premises wrong to start with. You see where the flaw is on that? It's remarkable because on even into the modern world, this is, this is, this is lost on a lot of people today. They hold to, the, to a, a labor theory of value as if the worker is the one that, that is entitled to, uh, to the ownership. And that's not. That's not the reality. Did, did he start with this manah? Did he earn it? Is that his manah? It wasn't his manah. It was his owner's manah. He's not free. He's a slave. All right? We've got to understand this. So when it comes to authority, and when it comes to ownership, and when it comes to uh, this, his complaint betrays his rebellion against authority. His complaint betrays his usurpation of what he does not own. And this goes all the way back to Satan. This goes all the way back to Ezekiel 28. It goes back to Isaiah 14. Satan's dissatisfaction with who he was, how he was created, where he was placed, what he felt he was entitled to. Why is he entitled to that? All right. Lusting over what is not his. So he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? In other words, not doing the actual work, but, but instructing it to be done, authorizing it to be done, directing it to be done, providing for it to be done, funding for it to be done, delegating for it to be done. This is the structure of the universe. Okay. Then uh, why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest and so forth. The consequences, similar to what we have in Matthew 25, take the manah away from him, give it to the one who has the ten manahs. And they said to him, Master, he has ten manahs already. Now these bystanders are interesting because these are the citizens, okay, not the slaves. And there's a distinction here. There's bystanders. And these are the ones that actually didn't want him to be king. They sent a delegation after him saying, can we arrange for him not, come, not to come back? <laughs> All right. And, uh, and different things there, these enemies. All right. And we're going to see what happens here. They're going to be slain at the end of this. All right. Anyway, if you want more on that, we've taught that already. We've got notes available on that. But... Now think about what's the difference, okay? Because we have a story basically told twice in the parable of the manas and in the parable of the talents, okay? And other than the fact that a talent is a whole lot more money than a manah, <laughs> beyond that, um, the main difference being in the, in the parable of the manah, every slave was given an equal portion up front. And they traded with an equal starting point and came up with different outcomes, different results. In the parable of the, uh, of the uh, talents, they were not given an equal amount up front. One was given five, one was given one, uh, two, one was given one. Okay? So why do you think it's important that we have both issues laid out there? What do you think the Lord is communicating as it relates to um, one story where everybody has the same starting point and then another story where everybody has a different starting point. Any thoughts on that? Does it relate to our Christian walk in any, in any way? Maybe. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The mana uh, imagery where everybody is given the same exact amount to start with, uh, that is a wonderful picture of the truth that relates to the fact that when you are saved, when anybody is saved, we are all equally in Christ. We're all, there's no male or female, there's no bond or free, there's no uh, Jew or Gentile. We are all one in Christ. 
And we all we have the same portfolio of assets. We have the same uh, 36, 39, uh, 53, however many position possessions, right? We all have eternal life. We all have a spiritual gift. We all have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We all have, uh, we're all justified. We're all redeemed. All of the portfolio of assets, every single one of us is absolutely equal in Christ on that first day of our salvation. Now, are we all going to have the same outcome at the end of our Christian walk. Some are going to stand there at the judgment seat of Christ with 10, with 5, with... That's right. So we, we want to understand that. Okay, so there is, a, there is a, an aspect there. Okay. But what about the differences? The other parable then, where, where how come he gives us additional, extra, above that? What does that teach us? According to ability, we're told. There are also differences in the Christian walk. But I think beyond that, I think you could even view it dispensationally. You could think the church as being the stewardship that was given five talents. Uh, maybe Israel is the stewardship given two talents or Gentiles the stewardship given one talent. Different stewardships are given different amounts based upon their ability, the empowerment. The church has more empowerment than any stewardship that's ever preceded it. So you could, you could view that, that parable on a dispensational basis. But even beyond that, within the church age and within the equality of every believer in the church age, there is still differences in terms of what the Father assigns to different believers at different times. And again, based on ability. And how do you get that ability? How do you increase in your ability? You stay faithful with the little things. And He increases and gives on the next assignment gives greater responsibility, entrusts you with greater things. All right? So both principles are valid. We want to identify with that. I'm thankful the Scripture gives both principles. The equality for every believer in Christ? Sure. But then also the rewardability and the, and the responsibilities that are entrusted upon uh, believers that are more equipped, that are more faithful, that are more able. See? So if we understand both, then I think... We do real well with uh, with both of these stories. All right. Question? Comment? Mm-hmm. Right. The worth of slave is in both cases an unbeliever. I, I think you have to take it that way because of the weeping and gnashing of teeth and the, and the, the um, relationship of weeping and gnashing of teeth to hell. All right. There, uh, there are some that try to view this as not hell, but excluded from a wedding feast or excluded from a rewards banquet or things of that nature. And as it pertains to Israel's rewards, uh, they, uh, Jody Dillow and some authors like that, try to view this as a non-hell setting uh, of a weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, temporal consequence. But I, I view this as an, as an eternal consequence, especially when you get right into the sheep and goats in the very next paragraph. So that's just how I see it, and that's how I teach it. So, all right. The, um, <laughs> although Arminians say this is somebody who was saved and then lost their salvation, right? So that's, <laughs> that's, that's a different conversation right there. All right? We believe, the Bible says very clearly, that... That's right. You, you don't, uh, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Neither life nor death nor things present nor things to come. That uh, you cannot lose your salvation. So this, this, this third slave who had the one talent and buried it and tried to offer it back to the Lord, um, he was never saved to start with. And that's, that's important for us to understand related to that. Okay. So recognize that the standard in judgment divides good and faithful from wicked and lazy. The standard in judgment divides good and faithful from wicked and lazy. From good and faithful to wicked and lazy. That's the standard in judgment. And what is it you want to hear? I know what I want to hear. Wicked and lazy. All right. Back to Matthew 25 then. The standard in judgment divides good and faithful from wicked and lazy. Understand, it's, 
an either or, right? It's, uh, it's like the judgment seat of Christ. It's either gold, silver, and precious stones, or it's wood, hay, stubble. It's an either or. It's an absolute basis. It's the, um, it's the contrast that comes up so often in Scripture. You either have eternal life or you don't. You're either saved or you're not saved. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either in the light or you're walking in darkness. You're in fellowship or you're carnal. It's an either or. Okay? Yes, sir. Only, uh, yes, only so far as those items get burned up at the, ju- at the judgment seat of Christ. When the wood, hay, and stubble, it says, we're, in fact, go ahead, hold your uh, finger there in Matthew 25. Let's look at, at 1 Corinthians. Um, be a good thing to remind ourselves of. Keep in mind, this is, a, this is a passage related to Israel, not related to the church. We have uh, a passage... I think we want to be cautious about the rebuke. I don't know that we're going to hear the rebuke. I think the rebuke's not going to be necessary. I think the uh, the burning up is, is going to be words enough. What else needs to be said at that point? And uh, when I consider the uh, nature of church age rewards and the, and the nature of grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 10 says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you're not saved, then you're not building anything. That's the foundation. You've got to come to Christ. You've got to be saved. There's your foundation. You could think of that as the first the first talent, the first coin that's entrusted. All right. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Now, that seems to be six different criteria. It is six building materials, but they're divided into only two classifications when they're evaluated. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And one of two things is going to happen. It's either going to remain or it's going to be burned up. You see the remaining in verse 14 and you see the burning up in verse 15. So if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And when we look back over those building materials, it kind of seems like it makes sense that it's gold, silver, and precious stones are the ones that don't get burned up. And then if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Yet he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so again, you're looking back at those six building material items and the wood, hay, and straw, the ones that are flammable, the ones that are susceptible to destruction by fire. Whereas the, uh, the purification that can take place with the gold, silver, and precious stones, it doesn't mean that those are unscathed. They're not immune to fire. Fire actually has a purifying value with, with uh, melting away the dross, we understand. And um, the big clue in chapter 4 and verse 5 then that says um, that when the Lord comes, He will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Now notice, is there condemnation in this verse? No, it's just praise. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So it seems to me like the, the burning away of the wood hand stubble, there's nothing that needs to be said after that. There's nothing that needs to be, we don't have to hear you wicked lazy slave, look at all that wood hand stubble going up in smoke. It's almost like that doesn't need to be said. That that's just consumed and he suffers loss. But whatever remains then each man's praise will come to him from God. And so, you know, do you have a hundred praise items, ten praise items, one or two praise items, or zero praise items? The idea is that there there's, could be some that have nothing whatsoever, but they themselves are saved as so as through fire. Okay? In which case, you know, enter into the joy of your master and that's, uh, that's all the praise you can expect. All right. So uh, the, the rebuke, you wicked, lazy slave, um, as they're being cast into the 
into the fire. Uh, you, you can we can think of that more as the uh, sheep and goat judgment. We can think of that more as the great white throne judgment. That that's what the unbeliever is going to hear. Uh, that's not what we might anticipate hearing at the at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay. All right. Well, then let's look at sheep and goats under point three, the day of judgment, the day of judgment. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 36, 31 through 46. All right. I think I said before, if we have any additional questions on this, feel free to bring them up tonight. We do have a question and answer time at 730. Uh, I think the reason why these spark so many questions is because church age believers try to shove the church age into both of these texts, into the parable of the Manah or into the parable of the talents, uh, passages related to Israel and their judgment and accountability and um, trying to find a, a, a direct correspondence with the with the judgment seat of Christ and the church age evaluation. And, and in trying to do that, you end up damaging the, the entire structure of the, of the text. This is for Israel. The church is still a mystery, all right? Same thing with sheep and goats. Let's look at this now. This is not the church. Sheep and goats. All right, Matthew twenty five thirty one. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So when's this going to happen? <laughs> right. Has this happened yet? All right. I think this is going to happen when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. That's when I think this is going to happen. Okay. And uh, that has not happened yet. History has not recorded that. The Bible has not recorded that. Anyone who claims that that's already happened uh, needs to... Uh, needs to show me, right? All the nations will be gathered before him. When did that happen? Hadn't happened yet, but it's going to. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, the word nations here is the word for Gentiles. And sometimes this is taught on a national basis. So here comes America, France, England. Um, or this is uh, thought of on an individual basis as it pertains to uh, all the Gentiles. So here comes every living Gentile and of the few that survived the tribulation. All right. I think Gentiles is better than nations. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there's a kingdom to inherit. And interestingly enough, in a Gentile context, these are uh, uh, an estate. This is a, a, a blessing for the Gentiles. And we're going to see that. We're going to spell that out for you here this morning. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Now, this, this is where when we see the description of this, I think it's best to view this passage, first of all, as individuals receiving evaluation, not nations receiving evaluation. Okay? Um, you know, in which case, you know, we can say, well, here's America. America's a sheep nation, we hope. Uh, here's Germany. Germany's a... a, a, a a goat nation, let's just say, okay? And we line up, there's 180 nations on the planet today, and they're all going to line up, and Jesus is going to separate out sheep versus goats, sheep versus goats. The problem with that is that in the Great Tribulation, all the nations of the earth are gathered against Israel. Every single one of them is hostile to Israel, including America, if we're still around by then, okay? Every nation is gathered against Israel, following Antichrist, attempting to destroy the Jewish people. Okay, so I don't think we can place uh, sheep and goats as nations here, but we can place them as individuals here. And we see this feeding them, clothing them, uh, dressing them, visiting them and uh, so forth. And this this describes individuals and how they're living out their faith, 
how they're identifying with the redeemed, how they're risking their own lives to do this. All right. Then the righteous will answer him. So key that we understand that. Probably the most important phrase in this whole section to understand is verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king. So he's already seated. All right, so he's the king. He's ruling. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine. Now there we're going to focus on too because too many people put the church in there. Right? Can't do that. Church doesn't start till Acts chapter 2. The church, forget you know about the church. Church is still mystery when Jesus is teaching this. These brothers of mine are the Jews. Even the least of them you did to me. Alright, so that's the first half. And then he's going to say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones. Now the accursed ones stand in contrast to the righteous ones, blessed of my Father. Notice that? Depart into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's an eternal fire, or there's a kingdom. You go on one or the other. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Alright. Prepared for you. Prepared for the Gentiles. See, we'll talk about that. What, what, what do Gentiles have to look forward to in the millennium? What do Gentiles have to look forward to in heaven or in the fullness of time? <clears throat> See, we don't often think about it, but we need to. We need to think about it more. All right, the day of judgment. Understand the setting for this judgment is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the setting for this judgment is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. It hasn't happened yet. We are still premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensationalist. That's our theology. That's our conviction of the Scriptures. It's our conviction of the Scriptures because... We believe that the Bible says what it means and means what it says. We believe that Scripture interprets Scripture. We're not free to create our own hermeneutic to make the Bible say what we want it to say to match our theology. Our theology has to be developed from the Scriptures, not forced into the Scriptures. Vital that we understand this. The setting for this judgment is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And once we, once we accept that, once we lock in on the sheep and goats, and we are... <coughs> oh, excuse me. Just having the worst of allergies today. Once we lock in on the second advent for the venue on this, then we understand that truly that's what this entire chapter is about. That's what Matthew 24 and 25 are about. We're dealing with the Lord's Olivet Discourse whereby they said, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he has been on this night giving them message after message after message after message related to eschatology, related to the end of the age of Israel, related to second advent, related to the coming kingdom, related to all of these things. So let's try to, let's not try to shove the church into here. Let's not try to, to well, let's, let's keep this in its right perspective. Now, not only do we have this in Matthew 24, uh, 25, 31, but 2 Thessalonians is going to be in complete agreement with this. Jude is going to be in complete agreement with this. Zechariah is going to be in complete agreement with this. And when we see the Jude reference, this is actually going all the way back to Enoch from the seventh generation from Adam. This has been promised as a coming day. And they've been looking forward to this every, before there were even Jews on the, on the scene. All right. So the setting for this judgment is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The setting for this is when God's kingdom comes to earth. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. All right? And they've been looking for that for a long time, even before there were Jews. Gentiles were looking for that. 
we understand. So let's take these a little bit out of order. Um, let's start with that Jude 14, okay? Simply because it references Enoch and it references the seventh generation from Adam. So Jude, everybody know how to find Jude? Okay, yeah, it's Revelation, back up one book. Tucked in there uh, in between 3 John and Revelation. And there's only one chapter. That's why we just say Jude 14. That's Jude verse 14. Some people say Jude 1 14. Bugs me to death. One of my little quirks. <clears throat> All right. It was also about these men, and I won't read you the whole context, but there's false teachers, antichrists, um, terrible conflict in, in the verses prior to that, very similar to Second Peter 2. Uh, but in verse 14 of Judah says, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. Now this, we don't have any reference to this in the book of Genesis. In Genesis, before the flood, we just have the, the narrative of, of the, the patriarchs and the, the genealogies. And we, we know that Enoch was not, and, and he, he didn't die. God took him to heaven without dying. That's all we know about Enoch. Um, nowhere else in the Old Testament, nowhere else in the New Testament, but this is uh, recorded for us here. Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. Jude, as an author, is very fond of triplets. And so here's a triplet right here. Ungodly, doing ungodly deeds in an ungodly way. And they're going to come under triple judgment for that. They themselves are ungodly. The things they're doing are ungodly. And the way they're doing them are ungodly. And they're held to a triple accountability with respect to that. So God is coming to earth. And uh, with many thousands of His holy ones. And this would be thought of as angels when first spoken of in, uh, in its context there. Later on, it would be understood to be resurrected saints as well as angels. It also says, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Every blasphemy, every careless word will come into account. All right. So this is one of the earliest prophecies we know about. What was it that Noah was warning his people of? Enoch was two generations before, before Noah. Three generations before Noah. Methuselah. Yeah, Lamech. And then... Uh, and then uh, Noah. All right. So this is a prophecy that was out there. It was, it was valid in, in, in uh, Noah's day. Didn't happen in Noah's day. Didn't happen in David's day. Didn't happen in Jesus' day. He said, I didn't come to destroy the world or judge the world. I came to, to, to save the world. But it is happening. It is happening. And when it happens, that's when the sheep and the goats are going to be separated. That's when Israel is going to be judged. That's when righteousness is going to be established on this earth. All right. So it has not happened yet. Now, I find it interesting, even all the pagan religions out there, every false religion out there has a concept of a coming judgment day, right? The end of the world, judgment day, the gods coming to the earth kind of a thing. Babylonians had a thought of that. All the, all the ancient religions did. All right, let's um, go from there to Zechariah. Zechariah 14.5, back to the Old Testament. Zechariah 14.5. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So we had the second to last New Testament book. Now we've got the second to last Old Testament book. Zechariah 14.5. Um, 
chapter begins here. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. So you've been plundered for quite some time and now you're going to replunder back. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. So, so how many is that? <laughs> Who gets left out? That's all of them. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured. The houses plundered. The women ravished. And half the city exiled. It's bad news when you're on the losing end of a war. When your city is captured. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. In other words, there will be a way of escape. There will be a remnant. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations when He fights on a day of battle. A day hasn't happened yet. That was not first advent. The uh, zealots wanted it to be first advent. I think Judas uh, betrayed the Lord in the hopes that he could trigger this verse. I think Peter grabbed a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane trying to trigger this verse. Then let's go, Lord, to the battle. Well, it's not that day yet. The idea that you can have the, the, the crown without the cross, the idea that you can just conquer the world and rule in righteousness, he had to go to the cross. That had to precede. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. His feet stand on the Mount of Olives. That's vital that you understand that. In the rapture, He does not stand on the Mount of Olives. In the rapture, He descends to the clouds. We meet the Lord in the air and He takes us back to, the, to heaven in John 14 where, the, where He's been preparing our dwelling places. That where I am, there you may be also. Critical that you understand that. But second advent, He stands on the Mount of Olives. He actually lands all the way on the earth. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain moves towards the north. The other half moves towards the south. <laughs> How'd that valley get there? <laughs> right? There's the way of escape right there. This is how they're going to flee. You know, if you're in a test right now and you feel like there's no way out, there's no way of escape, there's no, nowhere to turn, well, guess what? There is. He'll provide for it. You may not see it yet. And it may not be in a way you expect. But He knows what He's doing. He promised you that with the temptation, you will be able to endure it. You don't have to try to find your own solution to your problems. He's already got it worked out. Just walk by faith and see what He provides. It's a beautiful truth. You go, wow. How'd that valley get there? You know, that's a lot better than what I would have come up with. <laughs> you know? Well, I can wheel and deal and scheme and try to manipulate and try to solve my own problems. And at the end of the day, if I've succeeded, what have I really done? This is awesome. I should have just waited to see what he did. Okay? And you will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then, ah, then, when's this going to happen? The Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. It's not going to happen till then. It can't happen today. It can't happen. We, we understand there's a, there's a structure of things that have to precede this. The armies aren't surrounding Jerusalem yet. This can't happen yet. Christ hasn't landed yet. The mountain hasn't split yet. The valley hasn't appeared yet. The hosts uh, cannot yet come. All right. Describe some of these other things. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. You remember when Joshua had his extra long day so that he could finish the slaughter? That's the foreshadowing of what this is. And Jesus Christ will finish the slaughter. There will be no unbelievers left on the planet when he's done. And those that are brought prisoner to stand before him will then be divided out left and right. If they're saved, 
they'll enter in. If they're not saved, they're executed right there on the spot. Does that sound cold and heartless? Okay. A unique day, known to the Lord, another day and night. In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain. There's incredible topographical changes that take place. The, the entire structure is almost like the geography that changed at the flood. We're going to have a significant change of geography here for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is that um, this is what Judas wanted. This is what the Zealots wanted. This is what people today want. They want the kingdom. They want glory. They want happiness. But do they want the suffering that leads to that? Do they want the discipline that, that produces that? Do they want the, uh, the discipline? No. No. <laughs> Are you kidding? That sounds hard. That sounds difficult. So it's important that we recognize what the uh, the structure is on this. All right. Well, there's more there in Zechariah, but I'm running out of time. Let's finish with 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10. Paul had the same... Now, this is a church age passage in 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul has the same eschatology that Zechariah has, that, that uh, Enoch had, that um, Jesus had. But it is the most clear of all, and it's the most vivid as it pertains to the church. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 7-10. through 10. Last passage we'll look at here before we dismiss. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. I love this. How does a congregation see their faith and love increase? By going through the persecutions and the afflictions. Okay. If you don't endure the persecutions and afflictions, how does your faith increase? Like trying to build muscle when you're not hitting the weights. All right. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. There will be a recompense. What you are enduring now is producing fruit now. It will also produce reward in eternity and it will reap a recompense for those that are afflicting you. To repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's why you don't have to take your own vengeance. That's why you can relax. That's why you can leave people in the hands of the Lord. And you can keep praying for your enemies. Trust that maybe a day will come they'll come to salvation. They'll get saved. And then they won't have to reap this consequence. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When, notice now, when does the recompense take place? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That hadn't happened yet. Enoch talked about it. Zechariah talked about it. Jesus talked about it. Now here's Paul talking about it. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, salvation's in order. If you don't accept Christ, you're disobeying the gospel. Believing is described here. Do you notice that the parallel? Who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelievers go to hell not because of their sins, because they've rejected the gospel. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord from the glory of His power. Now start to understand that this is the context when He comes with His angels in flaming fire. When He comes to be glorified in His saints, by His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Sheep and goats are going to be divided out left and right so that He can be marveled at 
and the unbelievers, the goats, are going to be cast into hell. All right. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. All right. Well, we'll pick up on this next week. Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll uh, describe the division right and left, the criteria for that. Uh, they didn't earn heaven because they fed naked uh, Jews. Okay? They fed naked Jews as a response in grace to their status in Christ. And we're going to talk about that, the distinction between the righteous and the accursed ones. They didn't earn eternal life by doing these things. They did these things as a consequence, as a response. And that's, that's clear in the text, and hopefully we'll see that next week. Father, thank you for your truth, for your faithfulness. Uh, continue to shape our thinking as we grow. Father, a little bit here, a little bit there, line upon line, precept upon precept. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.